Well, this is it. You may have thought this never was going to come, but we have reached the final message in our series of sermons from the book of Romans. And I find, uh, I'm not surprised God works this way, but I find it amazing uh, how God uses things that I had not planned. There's no way I could have foreseen the particular events that we're facing as a nation right now. Uh, when I began my series of sermons on Romans, but it's been amazing to me to see how God has lined up teaching with these things that we're facing uh, in our lives today in such an amazing way, and there's no difference uh, today. Uh, I believe uh, the passage we're looking at today and concluding our series of sermons on Romans is going to speak very clearly to some of the things we're facing as Christians in our nation right now. Um, so we're, we're finishing out our series of sermons from the book of Romans, The Righteousness of God Revealed. And I want to remind you, that's really the overarching theme of this whole letter, that God in the gospel is bringing right back to a world that is wrong. And not just the whole world, but praise God, to me individually, he is bringing his righteousness to bear in my own life and making right what is wrong in me individually uh, as well as across all of creation. So let's, let's look at Paul's concluding words, and I believe I've, I think what he's talking about here and what I would like to uh, highlight about these verses. Uh, I've put it in the title of the message today, Our Part in Fixing the World. I don't want you to think that we have no part to play in, in what God is up to in the world. I think we have a vital part to play. Uh, but really it is God who's fixing the world. And let's see how we tie into that. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27. Let's read verses 17 and 18. Now I implore you, siblings, to watch out for those who are causing dissensions and temptations to sin right alongside the teaching that you have learned and turn away from them. For such persons are serving as slaves, not our Lord and Christ, but their own belly. And through smooth talk and blessing are deceiving the hearts of the naive. As I was reading these words and preparing to preach this Sunday, it struck me that uh, these are words we need to hear uh, today in the church. Uh, and Paul has, has you, you would think he's, he's done with the letter. He, he's done all of his teaching and had a final section of kind of some exhortations to the Roman uh, believers, congregations in Rome, and he's done his final greetings to everybody. You'd think he's be, he'd be done, but Paul cannot resist issuing one final word of warning because this is something he has recognized as the most critical threat to the life of the church. And uh, so even though he's repeating things that he's already said before, I think it's significant that he feels compelled to remind us once more before he finishes this letter of how important these things are. He asks, he begs, he pleads with his uh, fellow believers there in Rome, his siblings in Christ, watch out. Keep a lookout. Keep your eyes wide open. Be scouring the earth around you for this danger. Watch out for those who are causing dissensions. 
You know what it is to dissent, right? It's to disagree. It's to have the opposing opinion. And I could say that uh, our politics for the past few cycles have been marked by profound dissension. And what breaks my heart is to see how the church has bought into this and how Christians have become proponents on both sides of the divide of shouting and arguing and spewing hatred toward the opposite side. Paul warns us to watch out for people who cause dissensions. What is the gospel? Paul describes it as a message of reconciliation. We were enemies of God, and yet while we were still enemies of God, he came and made peace through the blood of the cross with us who were hostile to him and in the wrong. How did he deal with us wicked people? He gave his life to redeem us. That is how God is fixing the problems of this world. Not by identifying culprits and condemning, but by rescuing sinners from their sin. In all these discussions, I think it bears remembering that we as Christians need to keep our eyes peeled and watch out for people who are causing division, people who are increasing the hatred between us and others. And I want you as Christians to pay attention to the information you are feeding into yourself. Is this person encouraging me in the call of Christ to reconcile the world to God and to each other? Or is this a voice calling for hatred? For demonizing? For condemning those who are of a different opinion than myself? There are plenty who are causing dissensions, who are trying to divide and separate and identify the ones who are right and the ones who are wrong. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say that the gospel does not identify us as in the wrong and it does not uh, present to us truth, but the means by which God is fixing the problem is not merely identifying us as sinners, but actually, actually redeeming us from sin. Bringing us in, not pushing us away. And Paul says that people who are doing this, people, and of course in Paul's day, the big threat was this great divide he's been dealing with throughout his whole letter between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And when Gentiles have come to the faith in Christ, they have so much to leave behind of their previous way of living. They have to learn a new way of living. They have to leave behind things like sexual immorality, things like magical thinking and the belief that certain spells and uh, incantations allow them to control the universe and that they can manipulate the world and issue curses on their enemies and hate their enemies and love those who benefit them. And they're learning that uh, there is no way to get a handle on God that all we can do is surrender to his goodness and allow him to bring us where he wants us 
the Gentiles are having to give up the mechanics of magical thinking and the the sexual immorality that comes with their self-centered lifestyle and they're having to relearn a whole new way of living where they're living not for themselves but for others. Learning to not hate and destroy their enemies but to love them and serve them. Jews are having to learn as they come to Christ that that thing they thought was the center of everything, the law of Moses, is not God. And that the Messiah has come to fulfill and complete the law and that therefore the law now becomes a servant of Christ. And that Christ is the sovereign to whom they have surrendered. And Christ has radically reapplied their understanding of the law so that dietary laws are now understood differently. Uh, Sabbaths and holy feast days are understood differently. Uh, Even the sacred ritual of circumcision is being interpreted differently now in light of Christ because Christ is all. And they're having to come to grips with the fact that the law is no longer the centerpiece of their walk with God. And Paul is sympathetic to both sides and he knows how the enemy uses these differences to try to split us apart and the Gentiles are focusing on one aspect of the gospel and the Jews are focusing on a different one. Does that sound familiar to you? There are Christians who are so worried about how we treat immigrants and about how we treat the poor and how we uh, give dignity to every human being. And they are leaning to one side of the political divide. And there are Christians who are concerned about morality and honoring God and marriage and sanctity of life. And they find themselves on the other side. And we have people on both sides. What are the voices calling for dissension? rather than unity and healing. Paul says that these voices create temptations to sin. The idea is you're doing good, you're doing right, you're walking in Christ, and these guys come alongside and start whispering in your ear, and before you realize it, they have tripped you up. And you are now not doing what honors your Lord, you are doing something else. You have been tripped up and led into sin. And he says that they do this right alongside the teaching that you have learned. So we have this true gospel we have received. And these voices come right alongside that. And they talk about Jesus and they talk about holiness and they talk about truth and everything that is right. But at the same time they're whispering poison into our souls. right alongside and here's here's the way we combat this danger it's right alongside the teaching we have learned go back to what God has said to you go back to the Bible go back to the gospel go back to Jesus and how he gave us the hermeneutical key the Rosetta Stone for interpreting all of scripture when he said that all the law and the prophets the whole scripture hangs on these two commandments love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself and we know Jesus interpreted neighbor to include even your enemy That's the core. That is the truth we have learned. Go back to that and you will hear it when somebody is deviating from the truth. 
What does Paul say to do? Grab the pitchforks and the torches, surround them, burn them? Take up arms against them? No, he says, turn away from them. Just don't listen. Don't get in a shouting match. Don't dirty the world with ugly arguments on Facebook about it. Just turn away. Turn your back on these voices and stop listening. Here's another way to identify false voices. Such persons are serving as slaves, not our Lord and Christ, but their own belly. Consider when you're listening to somebody and and you're sensing that this is causing you not to love your enemy, not to be wanting to lay down your life for their rescue, but to push them away and exclude them. If that's what you're sensing, ponder for a moment, is this person's message to me calling me to give up my life for others? To take up my cross? To uh, surrender all? in the calling of Christ? Or are they calling me to defend my own interests, my own job, my security, my income, my comfort? Is that what they're calling me to focus on? Is it my own belly, my own selfish interest that is the focus of this? Are they telling me that Christ is the way I get what I want? Then it's a false voice. Christ is the way God gets what he wants from my life, not the other way around. And how do they do this? Through smooth talk. Most translations here have flattery. But I was shocked to realize that that is another meaning of the word we generally translate blessing. Eulogia. Through smooth talk and blessing, they're deceiving the hearts of the naive. And so often this self-centered message is so mixed in with things that we would heartily say amen to. Jesus is Lord. Yes, amen. Wonderful. And they blend it in with something that is not about Jesus being Lord, but it's about my own selfish interests. And how Jesus is here to serve my selfish interests. And they even use words of blessing. And I'm shocked to see Paul use that word because I look around and I see in the Christian church today how many peddlers of a false gospel like to talk so much about blessing. You use the religious language. But you're not calling people to surrender to Christ and to his commission to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. You're not calling people to that. You're calling them to figure out ways to manipulate God to make you rich. To guarantee your good health. To ensure that you don't suffer. That is an anti-biblical message. We are called to suffer in Christ. So, please, I implore you, along with the Apostle Paul, watch out for those who are lying to you and who are trying to deceive you and turn you away from the truth. I have a question from these two verses. 
Paul called on his readers to identify those who promote divisiveness and self-centered living and walk away from them. What voices are you listening to that you need to walk away from in your life? Let's keep reading verses 19 and 20. For your obedience is known to everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise to what is good, yet innocent to what is evil. Now the God of peace will annihilate the enemy beneath your feet in short time. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. As always, when Paul has words of correction or warning uh, in this letter to the Romans, he's been very careful to follow that up and say, I'm not among you. I've never been to your city. I'm just issuing general warnings. I'm not saying that you're messing up. I'm just saying watch out because these dangers are there. And he again affirms them. Your obedience is known to everyone. Everybody knows that you are doing what Christ has called you to do. I'm not suggesting you're not. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But here's, here's what I'm looking for. I want you to be wise to what is good. There is a lot of evil in the world around us. There is deceit. Uh, there is immorality. There's selfishness. There is abuse. There, there's horrendous evil in the world around it. How do we defeat evil? Paul has already talked about this earlier in the book of Romans. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we combat evil? We combat evil with good. So Paul says, what I want you to be is wise to what is good. When it comes to what is good, I want you to be geniuses. In the most complex of situations where finding what the good response is might be extremely difficult to tease out. I want you to zero in on where God is and what goodness truly amounts to and to focus in and know exactly what is good and do the good despite what everybody else might be whispering in your ears. And when it comes to evil, I want you to be innocent. I want you to be babies. I want you to be gullible, naive, know nothing about it. Sometimes we buy the lie of the devil. And it began in the Garden of Eden. You want to know more what it is to be like God? You have to do evil or you won't really know. God knows good and evil. You don't know until you've done it. If you do this, you'll be more like God. We still hear that, that idea today. That sometimes, you know, you have to be savvy. You kind of have to know how the world works. You have to uh, not be naive. But, you know, if they're playing dirty, then sometimes we got to get dirty too. That's, you just got to get down in the muck and do what you got to do. And the ends ultimately will justify the means because you're doing it for the righteous purposes of God. And even though Jesus rebuked Peter when he used the sword to defend his life, we find Christians advocating taking arms to the capital and changing our elections. Even though in Romans we read that we are to submit to every earthly authority that God has instituted, we hear talk of overthrow of the government. 
And we're expected as Christians to buy into it. We don't accomplish the good of God using the world's evil means. That's the way the world exercises power, through weaponry, through armies. You know how Jesus established the kingdom of God? When they tried to make him king by force, he went away. He refused to make political alliances among the powerful. He refused to curry the favor of the powerful elite. He refused to allow people to raise armies to defend his cause. He established his kingdom in a completely different way. That is the kingdom we are a part of. And his methods have not changed today. This kingdom is not just about this nation. This kingdom is about the world. It's about creation itself. And we are a part of that. How do we fight evil? I can tell you very simply, the gospel. That is our weapon. We respond to evil with the good of the gospel. Because only God can fix what is wrong. We can't legislate it. We can't take control of the government and make it happen. That will not change human hearts. But we have been given the message that has the power to radically transform a human heart and to make it righteous. That's the only way we're going to fix this world is by proclaiming the gospel to the lost and by living it ourselves so that what is wrong in us can be fixed as well because we are part of the problem. We too need the righteousness of God to be implemented in us. We want to be geniuses when it comes to what is good and to have no idea when it comes to what is evil. You know who crushes our enemy, who annihilates our enemy? Not us. God. And notice Paul reminds them how God is doing this. The God of peace. It is through his message of peace that God is fixing and defeating all the forces of evil. I fear that sometimes, even 2,000 years later, we as Christians still fall into the mistake of the Jews in the first century who did not want a Messiah who would not take up arms to defend their cause. We today follow the same Messiah that refused to do that in the first century and refuses to do that today because the world will be fixed with the gospel proclamation. Don't buy weapons. Buy Bibles. Don't stockpile. Get out there and share the gospel. That's how we defeat the forces of evil. And the God of peace will annihilate the enemy beneath our feet. That is how we come to victory. We do this under the grace of our Lord Jesus. I have a question from these verses. Paul reminds his readers that we defeat evil by becoming experts in doing good and refusing to participate in what is evil. Based on this biblical instruction, how should we respond to the evils we see around us? 
What should we do and what should we not do? Let's read verses 21 through 24. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to all the congregation, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you and brother Quartus. There are some interesting things we can say about these eight men that are named. We know about Timothy. Uh, His grandmother was a woman of faith. His mother married a Gentile, a non-Jew. And uh, Paul, on his first missionary journey, brought him to the faith. We don't know the details about that, but Paul calls him his son in the faith. Uh, So it's very clear that Paul brought him to the gospel. And then on his second missionary journey, as he came through, uh, Timothy joined Paul and his team. And Paul had him circumcised so that he could enter into the synagogues with him as he went to preach the gospel in new cities. So Timothy was with him when he went into Macedonia and northern Greece, north of Greece. And uh, when Paul was chased out of those cities and had to go south to Athens, uh, Timothy stayed behind and continued to affirm these brand new congregations in their faith. And eventually, Paul went to Corinth, and eventually Timothy rejoined him there and was with him in Corinth. Um, so now, as Paul has wrapped up his third missionary journey, Timothy is with him there in Sincrea, and he's going to accompany him on his long journey back to Jerusalem to deliver the Offering to the saints. Paul describes him as a fellow worker. I've said this over and over again. Paul was no lone ranger. He shared the ministry with anyone and everyone who was involved in serving the <coughs> purposes of Christ in this world. And Timothy was one of those. Uh, also with them are Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. He describes them as kinsmen, so they were Jews. Uh, Jason was uh, a believer in Thessalonica and when the uprising uh, happened there he was a guy that they dragged before the authorities and he had to pay a sum of money as a guarantee that he wouldn't run away and they released him so uh, he was a leader in uh, the church in Thessalonica and uh, he's accompanying the offering to the saints to Jerusalem. Sosipater is a similar thing. Uh, He was a believer, or Sopater is also a way of spelling his name in some other passages. He came to the faith in Berea, the neighboring city of Thessalonica. So he's coming in representation of the Berean congregation and accompanying this offering to the saints. Uh, We also have uh, Tertius identifying himself, and he says, Tertius, who wrote this letter, this was the common practice in antiquity. Paper was scarce and expensive. Writing materials were expensive in antiquity. You didn't just throw away pieces of paper like we do today. You know, you're writing a first draft. Oh, that's not good. You wad up the paper and throw it away. Uh, Paper was much too expensive back then to do something like that. So when you wanted to write a letter, you hired a scribe. And this was their professional job. They had good, clear handwriting and could write small and legibly so that you made the most of the sheet of paper you had and the people who received the letter could read what you were saying. So a scribe, or sometimes they're called amanuensis, uh, that's what Tertius was to Paul. And one more thing, 
Uh, the scribe was also trained to be eloquent and to put things well, to use the right kind of grammar and wording. And so if the person dictating the letter, their, their Greek was not quite polished and, and they might have used the wrong tenses or things like that, they would kind of uh, uh, make uh, editorial corrections so that uh, what the message, uh, the message that is being written down would be uh, clear and, and well written and beautiful. Uh, um, so they kind of served as editors, not so much to uh, insert their own ideas, but to make sure that the ideas they were receiving from the dictation uh, would be communicated clearly and beautifully to the reader. So that's what Tertius has done. He's the amanuensis. He had the daunting task of hearing Paul speak these words and putting them into intelligible Greek um, for his readers in Rome. He greets them in the Lord. The fact that he identifies himself uh, probably points to the fact that, uh, and of course, he greets them in the Lord, that he was a fellow believer. Normally, an, a scribe wouldn't identify himself. He would just do his job, and the letter is the person who dictated it. Uh, but he uh, greets them in the Lord. Then we have Gaius. Uh, there are a couple of people with this name, but the one we're talking about here must have been the one who came to faith in Corinth because Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how I'm so grateful I only baptized personally a handful of you. Gaius is one of those that Paul had baptized personally in the city of Corinth. And he must have been of some means because he's hosting a congregation in his home. Uh, so he must have a, a larger home. <clears throat> also another leader in the area, Erastus, the city treasurer. Uh, there are some other Erastuses mentioned, but uh, the fact that this one is city treasurer in Sincrea uh, points to it being a different one than, than other ones that are mentioned. Uh, but he's a position, a man in some position of, of influence uh, in the city of Sincrea. And finally, Brother Quartus. We don't know anything about him. One little oddity you might uh, find interesting, and uh, this really uh, uh, is just kind of a, a curious thing. Uh, tertius means third, and Quartus means fourth. So uh, probably Tertius was the third son born to a Roman family, and they gave him the name Tertius. And Quartus was probably the fourth son born to some Roman family, and they named him Quartus. Um, if you've ever seen, uh, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name. There's, there's a fantasy movie where all the characters are named one through seven, Primus, Secundus, Tertius. Uh, anyway, um, these are all people who have been sharing in the ministry with Paul. Uh, not only Timothy, people like Timothy who have gone with him, starting churches, affirming them, strengthening them, then going back. And he continues doing this throughout the rest of his life. Uh, but people who have been serving in congregations and are now uh, taking a whole chunk of time out of their lives, probably a year, uh, to travel with Paul to deliver this offering to Jerusalem. Consider how committed these people are to the cause of Christ. And to seeing that the body of Christ is brought together rather than divided. Would you put your life on hold for a year and gather a, a generous offering to help people on the other side of the world who don't really like you? That's what these people are doing. 
Because they have understood that there's no higher calling in life than the gospel and that full-fledged pouring ourselves into this gospel life and sacrificing anything that must be sacrificed to pursue it is the way in which we participate in God's victory over evil. I have a question from these verses. As Paul writes this letter, he is with eight others who share in his ministry. How should we work to ensure that ministry is a shared reality in our lives? And finally, some words of blessing, verses 25 through 27. Now, to the one who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept for timeless ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known in all the nations, according to the directive of the eternal God into the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory into eternity. Amen. Paul reminds them that there is one who will strengthen them. And Paul does not know this, but within a decade, Nero is going to unleash a horrendous persecution on the believers in Rome who are receiving this letter. He's going to kill many of them. He's going to burn them uh, in the streets at night as lamps to light up the streets. Uh, He's going to make them the focus of his hatred and scapegoats for his own uh, burning of a portion of the city of Rome because he wanted to rebuild part of it. Um, And uh, this horrendous abuse of power and all these things that are coming upon the Christians, Paul has no way of knowing, but he knows that whatever lies ahead, they will succeed because Christ will give them the strength they need. The Christians survived Nero. You know what? The church survived every wicked Roman emperor. You know what didn't survive? The Roman Empire. You know how the church defeated the Roman Empire? By spreading the gospel. So God is the one who strengthens us for this task. How does he strengthen us? And Paul says three things, according to, according to, according to, three times. We are strengthened according to Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. How do we find strength for the task at hand of rescuing the world from evil? We do it by living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. We do it by embracing this process of transformation by which God is bringing his righteousness to bear on us and making right in us all that is wrong. and by preaching Jesus Christ to the world around us because that is the only thing that has a prayer of fixing the problem in their lives as well. How are we strengthened? According to the revelation of the mystery, God has revealed this grand mystery for timeless ages. The humankind has been wondering, when is God going to fix all of this? Everything is a mess. The world is in chaos and wickedness is everywhere. When is God going to fix it all? And the whole holy scriptures, the prophetic scriptures pointed forward to God sending a Messiah to bring it all to right. 
That has finally been known. We are so fortunate to live the other side of Christ where we see clearly how God has dealt with the problem of sin and evil. We are strengthened in accordance with this mysterious gospel that God had been talking about for millennia and that has finally come to pass. We are strengthened according to the directive of the eternal God into the obedience of faith. This is what we're calling people to. Not to obey any human figure. Not to obey any human government. Not to obey any ideology. But to obey Jesus Christ as Lord. The faith we proclaim is a faith that calls for obedience. And we who proclaim it must live it. We must enter into the obedience of faith. We are strengthened to the degree that we surrender to Christ as Lord and make His great commission the marching orders for our very lives. That is how we are strengthened for the task. By carrying out the directive that we have received from the eternal God. You know what Paul's talking about there? He's talking about the Great Commission. We have been issued a directive by God Almighty. Come to us in the flesh. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are strengthened as we pursue that. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory into eternity. God deserves all the glory. He alone has redeemed creation. He alone has redeemed me. And I will spend eternity giving him glory for that. Amen. I have a final question. Paul reminds us that God is saving the world and that the gospel is how he is doing it. How should we avoid distractions and focus on living and sharing the gospel in our own lives? We've been hearing a lot back and forth about who's right and who's wrong this past week, two weeks. Who's lying, who isn't what's commendable, what's deplorable. You know, in the end, none of that is going to matter. This whole nation could fall, crumble to the dust. It's still in the big scheme of things. would not be uh, but a blip. Look deeper. Look higher. How is God fixing everything that is wrong? Not just in this nation, in the world, in the cosmos. How is God bringing everything back to right? Through this message of forgiveness and life. 
I want to remind you if you follow Christ that that is what your life is about. Everything else is immaterial by comparison. That your directive for living is to reach the world with the gospel that you are living fully yourself. And that you will not allow anything or anyone to distract you from that. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. We were your enemies. We were hateful. We loved ourselves. We did not love you, God. And yet you loved us. You pursued us. You emptied yourself of glory and assumed servanthood for us. And you purchased our peace at the cost of your own life. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us to yourself. And Lord, may we never forget just how unworthy of you we are. May we never look at the lost around us and despise them for being lost. But may our hearts be broken for their condition as yours is, God. And Lord, you are saving the world. Help us to join you in that task and give us the wisdom to identify false voices that would divert our attention from what you would have us do. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.